just heard the opening of the third movement of a sonata for oboe and pianoforte, opus 85, by English composer York Bowen, the first piece on our new album on CD Records, 20th Century Oboe Sonatas, featuring oboist Alex Klein and pianist Philip Bush. As you know, every time we have a new release on CD Records, we do a podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, president of CD Records and also proud producer of this album. And with me on this podcast is none other than Alex Klein. Hi, Alex. Hello. So, Alex, let's start right at the beginning. When did you start playing the oboe, and what drew you to the instrument? I was about nine years old, third grade, and not doing too well with school, not fitting in. And it was recommended that my parents try music or arts or sports, anything high energy, and a symphony concert visit led to my pointing to the middle of the orchestra and saying, I want that one. So these days, it's common for kids with that situation to be piled up with drugs to control the temperament. And the oboe did it for me because it was high energy enough. And as it turns out, I did better in school as well. That's a great story. And since you mentioned the symphony, I should mention that for... What, about 10 years you were principal oboe of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra? Yes. You've also appeared as soloist or chamber musician on Sadie Records on seven different albums. Yes. And before this one, this will be number eight. Yeah, proud to. We're glad to have you back. It's been a while since you've been the soloist on an album. You did appear recently on our album of music of Chicago composer Jim Stevenson. Yes. In a chamber music piece. Which was nominated for a Grammy. That's right in the best-engineered classical recording category. Yes. But speaking of the new album, what was your inspiration for this album of 20th century sonatas and your specific choices of repertoire on it? Well, as you mentioned, the other seven CDs that we released through CD Records, I, in the past, tended to go towards offbeat repertoire. I always shied away a bit from the regular oboe repertoire. This CD release is different. We go for some of the mainstream works, and I think it's about time. I always felt a little bit afraid of hitting the mainstream works right away in my career. I wanted to have something with a little more depth to present, and it's time. That's really nice to hear. Of course, your previous albums have added quite a bit to the repertoire, for which we're grateful. Some really spectacular performances of some late classical era works, concertos by Franz Krummer and also a wonderful piece by Hummel, as well as 20th century concertos by Pavel Sidor and Marco Llano, a friend of yours, of yes. course, from Brazil, as well as the Martineau. And also you did an album of wind concertos for flute and oboe with your Seatmate, Matthew Dufour, he yes. was principal flute in the CSO at the same time you were principal oboe, and music of Benjamin Britten with the Vermeer Quartet. Uh, uh, so Bliss as yeah. well. 
That's right, Wonderful Bliss Quintet. So a lot of very interesting repertoire. Speaking of which, let's get into the repertoire on this recording because it's not all basic repertoire. We get to the most famous works at the end of the album, but let's start at the beginning. When we were sequencing the program, I think everybody agreed that this sonata by York Bowen was the perfect opener. What makes the piece so inviting? It's luscious. It's the way he treats harmony, the way he develops, of course, the piano, that his own instrument. The way he treats the harmony in a Rachmaninoff-like quality makes it an enriching experience to play it. And that's a little bit odd and different. Other composers, even on this selection, attempt to do the same, to reach to the core of what an oboe can do. In his own way, Bowen finds one of the answers in creating just spectacular melodies made even more delightful by the harmonic treatment he does. I'm glad you mentioned Rachmaninoff because Bowen has been described as the English Rachmaninoff, and you really hear that yeah. in the sonata. Let's hear an example of that now. Here is an excerpt of the first movement, uh, the opening track on the album, Allegretto Grazioso, from the sonata for oboe and pianoforte of York Bowen, Alex Klein oboe, and Philip Bush piano.
We just heard an excerpt from the first movement of the Sonata for Oboe and Pianoforte, composed in 1927 by English composer York Bowen, performed by Alex Klein, oboe, and Philip Bush, piano, on Sadie Records' new album of 20th Century Oboe Sonatas. And I'm here talking with the soloist on the album, Alex Klein. The next piece on this album, which contains six 20th century sonatas, is by Peter Eben, a Czech composer. It's probably the least familiar piece on the program. You've said it contains some of the best oboe writing on the album. What makes it so complimentary to the oboe? Well, a little bit of background on that. The oboe, as we know, is played by two pieces of bamboo wrapped together. Its origins are as an outside instrument, better put. It's a loud and often nasal instrument, which we have attempted to civilize ever since the Baroque period. And composers always have been at odds with those two qualities. When do we and how do we make the best out of the instrument? Undoubtedly, the Six composers featured in this release have also battled with the same issue. How do we get this instrument to reach its beautiful core? And Eben, I think it's very successful in that, particularly in the slow movement, but also in the outer ones, in reaching the dolce that we all love to hear in the oboe, but also bringing forth its articulation and spicier colors as well. You also, I think, have a special personal history with the Sonata. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, in my college years, I was selected to participate in the Prague Spring International Competition as part of the Prague Spring International Festival, which at the time was headed by Peter Eben. And as part of the repertoire, one of the pieces we have to play had to be of Czech origin. And I didn't know them, so I asked them to send me all the scores. I selected at the time a different piece, which for a competition, it had more complex playing that I wanted to showcase. And you won a prize for that, right? And I won a prize for that, the best interpreter of Czech music. But at the same time, the winner for me, the piece that really touched my heart, was this Eben Sonata because of these oboistic qualities. I just didn't think it would be a good competition piece. But I started adding it to recitals since that time, and I fell in love with it. So it's a piece I've been playing for 30 years. And I think you've mentioned that it sort of brings you back to your youth when you play it? Yeah. It reminds me of that search, the choices we make when we're young, whether they are good or not. In this case, it was good when it, because I won a prize for the other one. But it always reminds me of the wonderful times of youth when I play the Eben Sonata. Speaking of youth, it's actually a creation of Eben's own youth. It's his Opus One from 1950. Eben was born in 1929. Let's hear an excerpt from that now from the slow movement that you mentioned earlier, which is a pastorale marked Andante Cantabile. Again, we hear Alex Kleinobo and Philip Bush piano.
We just heard an excerpt from the second movement, the pastoral slow movement of Peter Ebbins' Oboe Sonata Opus 1 with Alex Klein Oboe and Philip Bush Piano from their new album on CD Records, 20th Century Oboe Sonatas. And you can find that album and all of Sadie's albums, including seven more with Alex Klein, at sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E, records.org, or wherever albums are sold, streamed, downloaded, you name it, we're there. So I hope you have a chance to check it out. And it's my pleasure to be talking with Alex Klein right now. You've written in the booklet that these sonatas describe your own personal history. We've already discussed your early discovery of the Eben Sonata. Can you talk about how the rest of the program fits into your personal narrative? The Stewart College as well, in trying to discover new interesting repertoire, I remember going to the Oberlin Conservatory Library and just sitting on the floor next to the oboe repertoire section and just pouring through piles of scores and, and looking for cool things and one of these discoveries was the Boza Sonata, Eugène Boza. And I struggled to understand how come this sonata did not belong to the general core of the oboe repertoire, like the other French ones. We have other pieces by Boza which are part of the canon, a fantasy pastoral and a few others, and certainly chamber music for winds. But his oboe sonata was somehow excluded from that. And it's a superb work. In a way, a little bit different than his other works, but not too much. Boza has a lot of messian in him, has a lot of that French conservatory challenge to the intellect and to the fingers and to the phrasing. And I quickly fell in love with that. And I played that at college and has remained with him ever since. The Boza is an interesting piece also in that the finale is very different from the rest of the piece. So the first three movements are pastoral, flowing, with the two slow movements particularly calm. But then comes a finale that's as boisterous as anything ever written for the <laughs> instrument. Is it fun to show off after all that beautiful lyrical playing? It might be one of the reasons the sonata is not played as often, <laughs> because it's really awkward to play. But after a few hours of practicing, all of that can be ironed out. That is one example of the Messian style in his piece. It's fun when we have something different to play, especially after the third movement there, which also it's tough on creativity. The phrases never seem to go where we want them to go. So we have to use creativity and curiosity to find new ways of seeing it and, and describing that line. And then when we hit this fourth movement, it is a wild quality to it. And the way it ends, it's so bright and brilliant. And also some of the other awkward phrasings he puts in the middle. It's a brilliant sonata. Every movement seems to go to a different territory. The first one is so languid, so ethereal. And then you have a playful second movement and a daunting, mysterious third and a wild fourth. In other sonatas, even on this collection here, we can see that the movements sort of complement each other. 
Bolsa seems to be going in opposite directions for each one of them. And the crowning glory of this exploration is this fourth movement. Well, let's hear that now. This is the fourth movement marked simply anime from Eugène Bolsa's Sonata for Oboe and Piano. It's also the latest work on the program coming from 1971. So here are Alex Klein, oboe, and Philip Bush, piano. Fasten your seatbelts. That was the wildly boisterous finale, fourth movement, of Eugène Boza's 1971 Sonata for Oboe and Piano, performed by Alex Klein, my guest on this podcast, on oboe, and Philip Bush on piano. Speaking of Philip Bush, this might be a good time to talk about your musical partner. How long have you collaborated with Philip, and how did that partnership come about, and how has it developed? Well, I would have to guess about 20 years or so. Wow. Uh, they've been playing together. I met him at the St. Bart's Music Festival. It's a lovely place to be in January for those of us who live up north (laughs) to have a brilliant music festival in the Caribbean. And we played together in orchestra, in chamber music, so many times indeed that once due to flight schedules and delays, we actually played a concert without rehearsal. We knew what we were going to play. We knew it was safe to do so, and we knew what we wanted to do. We just walked on stage and played it. He is that kind of a trustworthy partner. Philip is not only a brilliant pianist, but has a chamber music sensitivity that few others can come close to. He's quite brilliant in the way he senses both his input, the input of composer, and the input of the people he's playing with. So it's a delight to play with people like that. Philip Bush is somebody we always look forward to the next project with. 
when I was considering somebody to work with for this particular project, it didn't take long for me to pick his name and invite him to do it. Wonderful. Let's move on to the Henri Dutilleux Sonata from 1947. In the booklet, you describe this piece and also the Poulenc as technically impossible in terms of achieving on the oboe what the composers actually indicate in the score and about your need to reinvent the instrument to compensate for that. Can you explain a bit? Well, despite their best intentions, instruments have limited technical abilities. And in the case of Dutilleux, there are things he asks for, let's say, the very end, where the oboe ends on the very lowest note in the instrument. And there is only so much loudness we can put into it before it quacks. And is that not something we like to do? The oboe already has enough of a <laughs> reputation of being a duck-like instrument for us to <laughs> to add to it. Thank so, you, Prokofiev. <laughs> yes, Prokofiev really uh, took it a step further there. But we try to bring mellowness into the instrument. We try to conquer its outside history and try to civilize it a bit. And in doing so, the oboe also loses some of that aggressive notion. And I don't think Duccio was after that aggressive notion anyway. But you would make sense for the end of the sonata to be very loud on the oboe. And as we try to do that, we realize there are limitations. If we go beyond a certain loudness to make it appropriate for the end, we also acquire colors which are not welcome in that moment. I don't think it is an aggressive ending. It's just simply loud and happy. Similarly, there are other moments where the oboe also plays very soft or very long phrases, and we adapt. We circular breathe. We choose fingerings then that create different colors and permit different dynamics. The Poulenc has a similar situation in the way he uses dynamics with the oboe are, shall we say, experimental, if not tentative. And if we're really, really going to play what he asks, the way it's supposed to be a double pianissimo or a triple pianissimo, we're going to end up giving up some of the other luscious qualities in the sound, which are needed for the rest of the piece. So in trying to put everything together, I realized that as written, they're not possible to be played with qualities that we value. These are the kind of decisions that you see conductors make all the time with orchestral scores where things may be scored counterintuitively to maybe dynamic marking. So this is kind of you doing the same thing. Correct. You've also described Dutia as really two different pieces. Can you explain a little bit about that? The third movement doesn't quite belong to the other two. The first two movements are tied together in similar phrases, similar motifs, and the second movement ends in the way the first one started, so they act as a unit. The third movement doesn't. It is common for oboe players to perform only the first two movements of the sonata, or only the third. Of course, in preparing this document that's a recording, we're going to present all three of them. But it should be noted that the third movement can be seen as a piece 
in its own rights. Well, let's actually hear from the second movement, the end of that pair. Mark, simply Vif, is there anything particularly you want to say about this before we hear an excerpt? Well, it's brilliantly written. It uses the oboe and the piano with their percussive, that bright and exciting moves. And after the explosion of the two of them together, it reaches back to the very soft and gentle approach again. It's a brilliant piece of music. Well, let's hear that then. This is an excerpt from the scherzo, marked Vif, the second movement of Sonata for Oboe and Piano by Henri Dutilleux, composed in 1947. We hear Alex Klein oboe and Philip Bush piano. We've just heard an excerpt from the second movement, the scherzo, of the sonata by Henri Dutilleux for oboe and piano. Oboist was Alex Klein. Pianist was Philip Bush. And it's all from their new album on Sadie Records, 20th Century Oboe Sonatas, which ends with two repertoire pieces for this instrument. Before we get to the most celebrated works on the album, let's take a step back and view the program as a whole. You say this collection of sonatas really quote, defines the modern oboe. So how do these pieces define it, and what stylistic elements set the modern oboe apart from the way the instrument was used in the broken classical periods? If you look at the 20th century for all instruments, there's been a search for opening the instruments to new sounds, often aggressive, often even distorted from what was known until then. See what's being done to a flute or a clarinet or a piano even. In the 20th century, we've been adding all the way from ping pong balls to chains onto the piano and um, creating new sounds. And similarly with violin, which often sounds percussive in 20th century pieces, away from the lyricism that lasted us through a Nielsen or Sibelius concertos, And in the oboe, 
there has been also a search for new sounds, but these main landmarks of the repertoire that are presented in this release guide us towards the opposite, and it seems like we also want more lyricism. We haven't had enough of the lyricism, but we keep looking for new ways for the oboe to be expressive. Pieces like Sansam add virtuosity to it, and that's 1920s, the earliest of our works here. And pieces like Poulenc in this middle movement adds a lot of excitement and articulation to it, but always looking for the oboe voice. And this makes it distinctive from the 20th century story of other instruments. And what do you attribute this relative scarcity of oboe repertoire between the classical era and the 20th century? Well, the oboe took a long time to develop. We did well through the early 19th century. But then the first instrument to tread a new route was the piano. The pianoforte was already being played by Beethoven, and pretty soon it got developed further with Mendelssohn, Schumann, and so on. And the 19th century was great for piano. Chopin, Liszt, Schnabel and his students, wow. The oboe was late to that party. Another early arrival was violin, of course, with Paganini and others reinventing the instrument, adding more tension to the strings. The strings are no longer gut-made. They are made out of metal. The overall instrument has more tension, so it projects louder. And now new techniques allow for really fantastic writing, both technically and expressively. Woodwind instruments took a longer time to do that. I would say the oboe caught up with that development around the 1880s, so about 80 to 100 years behind what a piano would have done. Was there a particular figure like a Paganini for the oboe that brought it back into style? There were people doing very amazing things, most notably Antonino Pasculi, who is touted as the Paganini of the oboe, But even Pasculi was playing on what is essentially a prompt-up classical oboe, which added keys, which is what Brahms used and Dvorak used and Tchaikovsky. Those were the design of the instrument. The bore measurements were focused back on the early 19th century, even late 18th century. It was essentially a similar oboe to what Mozart had with added things, added keys. In the 1880s, we begin to see movements to reinvent the oboe. And then we added a low B flat to it, which caused all sorts of intonation problems, which were eventually fixed by adding resonance keys and further development at the bore. So the 20th century then arrived for oboe in the 1880s. And that's the oboe we are still playing to this day. We keep reinventing it and improving it, evolving it. But it's essentially the model that we had at the time of Debussy and forward. And this is what pulled the oboe out of the orchestra again, where it always thrived, of course. I think of the critic who wrote that the only good melody in the Brahms Violin Concerto was written for the oboe. We like to say <laughs> that, that the Brahms is a oboe concerto with violin of the gut. <laughs> Just lay that out there. Excellent. But it explains why we don't have a lot of 
repertoire by major composers in the 19th century. Yeah, Schumann wrote romances which are experimental. Brahms didn't leave us chamber music like he did for clarinet. So we oboe players are very jealous of that. And it wasn't until really the late 19th century that we started seeing major composers looking at the oboe again as a proper solo instrument. Until then, or through the 19th century, essentially just an orchestral instrument with few exceptions of attempts to make it as a solo instrument. A couple of which are actually documented on your album of wind concertos, one by a composer named Wilhelm Bernard Malik, solo oboe concerto, and then there's a wonderful Michelis concerto for flute and oboe on yes. that album, which I can highly recommend as some mid-18th century examples. Yeah, um, they're uh, both wonderful pieces and develop the instrument as best they can. But of course, they're not dinner table composer names. No, Moschelis and Molik were beautiful artists, but they didn't quite make the cut. Well, if you want to hear that album or any of Alex's albums, of course, you can go to sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or anywhere uh, recordings are found, whether you want to stream them on Spotify and Apple Music or go to iTunes and download, you name it, we're there. So I hope you'll check these out. But speaking of composers who did write prominently for wind instruments as solo instruments, Poulenc uh, probably wrote the best-known sonata for oboe. Is there a special challenge in recording and playing a piece that just about every oboist before you has put their stamp on? (laughs) Brilliantly so. There are many beautiful recordings of that. Again, that's one of the reasons I decided to leave these sonatas to be recorded later in life once I had an opportunity to think about them for decades and play them on different occasions and re-study them, reinvent them in my mind. But indeed, you're correct. Poulenc is accessible even to a good high school player. Hmm. So it is a piece that we learn early in our teenage years, and it is a major composer. It is a piece that's beautiful and fits brilliantly into recitals, be them professional recitals or master's recitals and other things we do at school. Uh, So it stays with us. It's something that's always around the corner. You've spoken of the piece as Poulenc's Requiem. It's one of his last pieces, dates from his penultimate year. How does that feeling inform your interpretation and maybe set it apart from others? When we, we look at a piece of music, we like to look for unique details, something that sets it apart, something that can set even our approach to it apart, because God forbid we release yet another recording of the same piece with pretty much the same approach. So there it is, another Poulenc Oboe Sonata. We don't want to go that direction. We have to find something unique, a new discovery. So I always try to find different points of view. And it's interesting that this sonata is written in the memory of Serge Prokofiev, who died nine years earlier. As it turns out, Poulenc himself died just a few months after writing this piece. And there were other peculiarities. Around the same time, he wrote the clarinet sonata, which has similar motifs with the oboe piece, but taken from a different approach. What in the oboe would be a fortissimo, he did in pianissimo 
for the clarinet. What in the oboe sonata would be fast, in the clarinet sonata, that motif will be played slowly, and vice versa. So the two of them go together. And another piece written around that time is the Dialogue of the Carmelites, his opera. And the Carmelites, of course, talking about the nuns, it just so happens that the last movement of the oboe sonata here has some churchy motifs. It begins with the piano with full pedal for several bars, almost imitating a place that has very wet acoustics, which we tend to point towards cathedrals and and big spaces like that. Even the oboe line that comes right after is sort of church-oriented or hymnal in quality. I don't think by saying that, that Poulenc had a religious moment or religious awakening at the end of his life. I don't think it needs to be that. But what I notice in the third movement is that he's facing a power that is death, which is beyond his control. And he can attribute that to a symbolism of a godlike figure without necessarily being religious about it. It is a power that's there, and he can't do anything about it. Throughout the third movement, the oboe is small, trying to make a last statement against a big, powerful piano. And at the very end, we notice that the piano has an ostinato, an eighth note, repetitive, repetitive, eventually slowing down as the oboe plays and sustains a last note, followed by a very somber, deafening chord in the piano. And I see that as Poulenc perhaps foreseeing his own demise, or a demise, as the oboe sustained what is essentially a person's last breath, and that ostinato being life, or a heartbeat, slowly disappearing. And then going back in the sonata, we see the first movement, it requires about five different sounds in the oboe, and because of the extreme nature of the writing, as we are talking about before, what makes it impossible. And the first movement, elegy, goes back and forth between sadness and often anger and then emptiness. It starts with emptiness. The oboe plays four notes without the piano is not even present. There's not even rhythm present. It's just sustaining as if creating a mood. The second movement has two very opposite portrayers. One of them is very angry and aggressive and moving and extreme. And then we have an interruption, sort of saying, what would life be if there wasn't death? What would the opposite of that aggressiveness be? And then he goes back to the aggression after that. But typical to Poulenc's playfulness, aggressive doesn't quite describe it. It is a momentous, powerful playfulness. To get back to that first moment, in the notes to this album, your friend, Chicago composer Leon Chernoff, makes an interesting observation. You talked about the lack of rhythmic feeling to it, even though it's dedicated to Prokofiev, composer very well known for his rhythm, and the melody is completely stolen from the Stravinsky Violin Concerto, 
there's a short couple of introductory notes from the oboe. Then the piano comes in, and it is literally note for note for the next several bars, the Stravinsky Violin Concerto, but without any of the rhythmic snap. I just find that really amazing that Poulenc chose to do that. Yeah, it is marvelous that way. He has the same ostinato eighth notes that will be repeated at the very end of the third movement. So it's like the beginning, we still have life, even as we go through that motion of commenting on Stravinsky, but then eventually it degrades into a lifeless situation. Let's hear that opening. So this is from the first movement of the Sonata for Oboe and Piano, written in 1962 by Francis Poulenc, and it's played by Alex Klein, oboe, of course, and Philip Bush on piano. We just heard the beginning of the wonderful Sonata for Oboe and Piano, one of the last works of Francis Poulenc, performed by Alex Klein Oboe and Philip Bush Piano from their album of 20th Century Oboe Sonatas, being released on CD Records in April of 2019. And we come to the last work on the program now, the other repertoire piece on the album, which is by Camille Saint-Saëns, a late work for him as well. It's also the fourth work out of six on the album that's by a French composer. Alex, why do you think the French are so heavily represented among 20th century composers for oboe? The French were amazing for the woodwinds. Ever since the creation of the Paris Conservatory in the early 19th century or thereabouts, everything we know today, everything we value about oboe playing, 
comes from that tradition, all the major teachers, all the major works. And through that, the composers who went through that school developed quite an amazing repertoire for us and continue to do to this day. We rely a lot on that tradition of woodwind writing from the Paris Conservatory. Sometimes we say there are three major oboe French sonatas. I like to put the boats in there to say there are four because all of them are unique and they see the oboe in a different light and they are key to understanding the best the oboe can do from the 20th century's eyes. So there they are. They are all French. Now, not only is Sassault the oldest composer on the album, but his sonata looks backward to older styles, and that's not something he's particularly known for. Why do you think he did that in this piece? Is there something particular about the oboe that would make him lean in that direction? Well, I'm sure we can leave that to the musicologists to the researching fine, but to my knowledge, that remains an open question. And if I may say so, I don't even look for the answer because the question itself is already so inspiring. Now, why would he? That creates a sparkle for the imagination that we can look for solutions to that in the music itself. Sansan was peculiar in the way he wrote virtuosic music. His violin pieces, of course, are peculiar on that. But this oboe sonata has pastoral feels reminiscent of French countryside and all that evocates. So perhaps he might have been revisionist. He might have been remembering his youth. And this is a very late work. It's from his last year. Yeah. So maybe he was looking back at the good old days mm. as well. We sometimes raise the same question about Richard Strauss in his oboe concerto written mm. also in the last few years of his life and how it brings up moments from his youth. Good points. And finally, you, in talking about the sonata, talk about your choice of tempos as both being more accurate than what most other players choose, and yet at the same time you say that's radical. How does that square? Well, radical in the sense that it goes against tradition. As this piece, just as Poulenc, is performed as early as our mid-teenage years, we have fallen into a groove of certain tempos being there in a certain way. The last movement is always seems a little too slow for the molto allegro feel that he seems to be going for and for the fact that the downbeats seem to come every four measures, not every measure. So it's like we have to look forward a little bit farther for the next big step down of a downbeat feeling. And same thing on the first movement, that's marked andantino. We tend to play it a little bit too fast on the traditional ways, if I may be so bold as to judge tradition. And we have also allegretto for the second movement, and that always seems to be played too slow. Remember, I was evoking some kind of French countryside feel, including the recitatives. It's got the beginning and the end of the central movement. My feeling is that it should be more skippy, it should be more light and flowing than tradition. And as I mentioned before, when I approach a piece, I am not too interested in tradition as much as I am in what else hasn't been done, what stone has remained unturned that we can find something interesting and worthy of 
dialogue and conversation about it. So it is with that point of view that I use this recording as an opportunity to present a question. Shouldn't we be revisiting these tempos and coming up with a better explanation than just this is the way it's done and then come up with reasons to think it differently? Well, you've talked a bit about virtuosity in respect to this sonata, and of course the reason we chose to end the album with it, I think mainly, is the tremendous virtuosic flourish that is the Molto Allegro final movement. Is there anything you'd like to say about it before we play it? Well, it's brilliantly written for the oboe. Maybe I shouldn't put it that way out in the open, but it is much easier to play than it sounds. <laughs> it's, it sounds brilliant, virtuosic, and way out of this world, but it is well written for the instrument, so it falls into the fingers more easily than you might think. And that I credit to Sansan's intelligence and knowledge of orchestration. He knew what the oboe could do. Other than that, it's not just the virtuosity, but it has to sound right. It has to flow, and it has to be beautiful. So Sansan laid it out very beautifully for us. He created an extremely delightful movement that happens to have virtuosity attached to it. But it's not a cold virtuosity like we might see in a Paganini-esque or a list-oriented piece that requires virtuosity first, and then we play beauty after that. No, this entire sonata, including the last movement, requires that the player is musically inclined, and then we add virtuosity only as a touch-up. Well, let's hear that final moment, Molto Allegro, from the... Sonata for Oboe and Piano, Opus 166 of Camille Saint-Saëns, performed by our guest today, Alex Klein Oboe and Philip Bush Piano. Thank you. 
just heard the third and final movement of one of Camille Saint-Saëns' final pieces, his Sonata for Oboe and Piano, from his final year, 1921, performed by Alex Klein Oboe and Philip Bush Piano from their new album on Sadie Records, 20th Century Oboe Sonatas. Now that we've had a taste of each of the six pieces, Alex, what would you like listeners to take away from hearing the album as a whole? First and foremost, I am very pleased with the opportunity. And I thank you, Jim. I thank CD Records. I thank Bill Malone and Philip Bush for being there with me. There is an item of this in that this recording would have never been made if it wasn't for maybe all of us believing in the impossible. I'm not supposed to be playing. I already quit the oboe several times. But then we find a way to reinvent it and come back and do it more. So on one end of this answer is that I would like people to understand that it is possible, that we can look at an impossible situation and somehow make it work. This release took more out of me than probably all previous seven uh, Mm. CD releases combined because I was dealing with questions and artistry and rebuilding that were isolated from me, and I had to regain them. Not even talking about playing the oboe and playing these pieces in a practical sense, but to achieving a point that I can present to you all, an artistic statement. That was of primary importance for me. Do you want to be a little more specific about what it was that you were battling that caused you to go back and forth in terms of playing the instrument for a while? Well, in my early days with the Chicago Symphony, I acquired a musician's folk with Estonia. It just essentially means a, a couple of my fingers decided not to show up for work. And so of those 10 years uh, in the Chicago Symphony, maybe eight of them I was battling this thing. It is with other musicians, often a diagnosis of it comes late. So it took several years for me to realize what is it I was battling. And it was my choice to be very vocal about this, not only because I didn't want to be living a lie and telling the public that everything is okay when I go home and I have an illness. That seems kind of burdensome. But also because I was really upset that I knew so little about something that affects 1% to 2% of musicians. And this is, of course, the same condition that Leon Fleischer battled in his right hand, correct? Correct. And Gary Grafman and so many others. The list of musicians affected by this is horrendously long. And 1% or 2% means that every orchestra is going to have at least one. And this is unacceptable. And we've been talking now among us uh, with Foco d'Estonia and, and others about how to change that. But to make a long story short, I decided on my own that I was not worthy of being in the Chicago Symphony. I was encountering too much trouble, so I quit in 2004 or thereabouts. From then on, I decided to continue playing only because oboe is my life. Since age nine, it sort of saved me from a life of complications arising from attention deficit. And I just couldn't find anything else to be so central to my professional life as the oboe is. 
So I reinvented it several times. We go so far in one direction, then we go back, and then we try another thing. Since focal dystonia is based on the brain, we have to retrain our muscles to do it all differently. This has nothing to do with knowledge of how to play the oboe or how to play music, because that's stored in the memory. We're talking only about how that information reaches fingers. So how to play the oboe, how to be a musician, how to address style and specific composers, that has never left me. We just had to continually look for a better way to get that information out. And this project was particularly complex because it came at times when I was exposed to some of the worst situations that come from people when we encounter disabilities such as this and that uh, how do we relate to society and how does society relate to us? Often we find situations that are very, very sad and very discouraging. And it was a breath of fresh air to be able to fight for this performance in particular. Now, the juxtaposition of these three main French sonatas, adding the fourth with Boza, and then in the same release, having Peter Ebens and York Bowen's piece. And what do they have that combines with the French approach? I also want that to be perceived and valid. I would like oboe players out there to consider both York Bowen and Peter Eben as being part of the main canon for 20th century sonatas. And I'm sure there are others out there who deserve equal prominence. But we oboe players tend to focus too much on those few. You know, we have Sansan, we have Poulenc, and occasionally maybe a you would be heard. Well, it's time for us to expand that main canon a little bit. Well, it's a brilliant performance as people have just had a chance to hear excerpts and hopefully we'll check out the whole thing also. We have a Spotify playlist that people can listen to, our featured playlist for April for the Sadie Records Spotify page, which is a spotlight on you, of course, as a performer with selections from all of your Sadie recordings and some of your other recordings, as well as tracks that you've chosen that have been particularly meaningful to you. So people will check that out. So what else is coming up for you right now? Well, I am happily performing with the Calgary Philharmonic and teaching here at DePaul University in Chicago. During the summers, I teach at Aspen, and I'm performing with the Mostly Mozart Festival, and I continue doing the Sunflower Music Festival as well. And I now divide, since my focal dystonia came out, and I had to divide my life between oboe and social work. And my main activity with social work in music is the Santa Catarina Music Festival in Brazil which already attracted over 10,000 students from 40 countries. It's a marvel that we can put all of that together and give those students a new lease on, on their musical life. Well, that's really wonderful. So when you were talking about dividing, it, that's because with this condition you can still play, but you can't play every day as many hours like you used to, right? Correct. Yeah. Whereas before, it was normal for me to practice six to nine hours in a day. It's now limited to one, two, maybe three. That's and an the, impressive limit. And that's already <laughs> a push. <laughs> yeah. 
And finally, we always like to ask at the end of these podcasts, still teach here at DePaul, of course, and of course, having been principal oboe for the Chicago Symphony for 10 years and making all these recordings for Sadie Records, the Chicago classical label, what is it that makes the classical music scene in Chicago special for you? Well, I am delighted that I'm still in contact with my Chicago Symphony colleagues. We have formed a trio, a reed trio, with clarinetist John Yeh and bassoonist Keith Bunky. And we perform a few times a year here in Chicago. There is an amazing collection of repertoire for that, also based on French composers and or influenced by them. So that is something I always look forward to. DePaul, I marvel at everything that school is done and is doing. Their new facilities are state-of-the-art and revolving around students and teaching and, and everything we can do to, to make this world a better place through music. And I also am very thankful that Chicago seems to have a good balance between big institutions like the Chicago Symphony and the Lyric and, of course, all of these universities, but also plenty of activities in chamber music and plenty of uh, activities for these social events like a people's music school and others. In smaller ensembles, there is room for all of this. So we are not a city that is all or nothing. Like some other big cities are, the only way for it to make it is to make it big. Chicago allows for smaller groups, smaller ensembles with only regional interests to flourish. So we have a lot of community orchestras in town playing brilliant repertoire. And so it's a very healthy music environment. When you say community, I think you're really talking about professional orchestras, but of freelancers, right? Well, I'm thinking of, say, the Park Ridge Civic Orchestra. They're going to present the Planets pretty soon, mm -hmm. which is repertoire normally we expect to hear it from big symphony orchestras, but they do it to their community. We also have the Symphony of Oak Park with Jay Friedman. They play Mahler symphonies. Wow. And Ricardo Muti once a year goes there and does a rehearsal with them. So this kind of opportunity that you can have a day job and rehearse with them in the evening, or you can be retired, but you still play the violin, go. And you can play with these orchestras and do amazing repertoire. This is very healthy for the overall musical experience of a community. So Chicago is to be commended for permitting such a music market. It's really wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Alex. This has been a real pleasure, and I have to say this album was a delight to produce, and I hope people enjoy hearing it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. Thank you.